how many Stacey Abrams are there doing work either in different states or just totally different views or perspectives on what is needed to change American democracy who need support would benefit from support would benefit from a community, a cohort of folks doing similar work in order to go take that risk, take that bet, take that chance to the benefit of us all and to our system of government. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. I was happy to get the chance to talk to today's guest, Jason Birkenfeld, Senior Managing Director at Schmidt Futures. Jason helps choose and manage social impact projects. Schmidt Futures is a enterprise of Eric Schmidt, former CEO of Google and Wendy Schmidt, and has been quite active in some of the areas I follow in this podcast. I asked Jason about how his education and his career in tech politics and business took him to this current role and how Schmidt Futures decides what people and projects to support, particularly in the fight to protect and improve our democracy. I really enjoyed getting to know Jason and learning a little bit more about Schmidt Futures and their projects. I hope you will listen. So first, my sponsor, then my interview with Jason Birkenfeld at Schmidt Futures. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Jason, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Yes, of course. Well, Nathaniel, it's great to be with you. My name is Jason Birkenfeld. I'm Senior Managing Director at Schmidt Futures, a philanthropic initiative of Eric and Wendy Schmidt that bets early on exceptional people, where I lead our work focused on protecting and advancing American democracy. I come to this work after a lot of time spent in politics, many cycles, Indeed, the first cycle I ever worked on in politics was Obama primary in 2007, where he was 40 points behind Hillary Clinton in the early days of that year and was immediately smitten by him and by politics generally. Uh, never really looked back. Spent many cycles thereafter on races up and down the ticket from local races in Manhattan, in New York, where I'm from originally, to presidentials out in Iowa and everything in between. And ultimately knew I wanted to be in the business of helping to make laws in some form. And so went to law school to figure out how laws actually do work. Had a really interesting three years, not really wanting to be a lawyer, but knowing I wanted to be in the political space more broadly. Thought that would translate into maybe a job in the Clinton administration on the other side, but that didn't work out for literally anyone in any form. And then decided to go work in tech for a little bit as a different way to make change, where I spent 
three years as the head of community at Thumbtack, which is a marketplace for local services. And there spent a lot of time with small business owners who were just trying to advance the American dream for themselves and their families and learned a lot about the ways in which the American dream was coming short. But ultimately, knew I wanted to get back to politics, to political work, and have been at Schmidt Futures for the last three years. It's kind of what one would expect is that you have this interesting combination of clearly you're smart, you went to good schools, did well, you have experience in the tech world, in the political world, in the world of investment too, which I don't think you highlighted, but in the corporate world and and deciding what kind of companies to invest in and things like that at Bain, right? That kind of all comes together with what you're doing right now. There aren't that many people have that combination. For sure. I mean, I think it always makes more sense in retrospect than it does at the time. It's easy to craft the thread when you look back on it from job to job, chapter to chapter. I was just moving towards the thing that I wanted to be doing that spoke to my passion at the time. And yes, you're right. In hindsight, you know, I got the experiences that ultimately made me more effective in the work I do. Um, but I wish it was as clear at the time as it is looking back on it. That's often the way things are. What were you like as a kid in elementary school? Oof. I definitely was a hard worker at a young age. I think was very invested in family. I think I was socially conscious at a young age. Progressive values were pretty deep in my family history. Both of my mother's parents were Holocaust survivors. And so at a pretty young age, I was getting the lessons about what a government can do uh, to people when it is founded on hate and division. Obviously, when I was in elementary school, I got a very different version of that than when I was in high school and you know, later as a, a fully formed adult. But that history was definitely a part of my growing up, recognizing that hate and disinformation can produce tragic outcomes. My mother's parents lost their whole families because of that. And so that was instilled in me at a young age. But other than that, you know, I, I think on the whole, I was lucky to have a great childhood growing up on Long Island had a lot of family near me. I think we knew that ultimately with the privilege that I've been given came a responsibility to do the work, to find ways to provide for others. Um, and so again, I don't know how much of this awareness I had as an elementary school student, but I remember feeling it at a young age and being interested in politics at a young age too, because I saw the connection of hey, there's a way to actually help people at scale. And it's through this thing called a government. And I was still learning the three branches and how it all worked. But like, I remember that clicking at a really early point um, and ultimately leaned into that obviously pretty hard. It was, I think, deep in, in my family story and history and therefore it was top of mind in uh, the early days. I have a kid who's a, a junior in college and one who's in middle school, eighth grade. And so I think a lot through their eyes. What was that whole process of applying for college like for you and getting into Harvard and going there? How was that story for you? I was very lucky to have parents who didn't put a lot of pressure on me, um, who taught me that what will be will be, so to speak, that things work out as they're supposed to. I remember feeling internal pressure to work hard and to do my best always, but never got that from others, only put that on myself. 
I remember going through the college admissions process, wanting to give it my all and do the best that I could, but also knowing that I'd be okay no matter what. Ultimately, you know, applied to Harvard along with other schools. It worked out. And I remember being thrilled, obviously, by the enormity of that opportunity and the enormity of the privilege that comes with it. And just feeling a lot of luck and gratitude as a result. I wish I could say, you know, my goal since I was in elementary school was to get into Harvard. That wasn't the case. You know, my family valued education and working hard and being persistent and determined. And those were values that pushed me to give everything my all. But it never had a particular focal point in terms of a particular institution I needed to go to or a particular path I needed to follow. You said you got hooked by the Obama campaign, and that was right around that same time. Did that influence your decision in what to major in and how to get an education, or is that disconnected? Oh, no, totally, totally connected. I start my real political awakening with the Obama primary, so that was 2007, so I was a senior in high school, and ended up interning on that campaign right after I graduated high school before I moved to Cambridge for college and definitely started college all in on the Obama campaign and started organizing my fellow students and joined the Harvard College Democrats my first week on campus and really found there a community, a home of folks who were similarly political nerds, for lack of a better term. And you and you end up president of Col- of I did Democrats. yes yeah, yeah. yes um, it was where I spent the bulk of my extracurricular time where I made some of my closest friends I actually met my fiance through the Harvard College Democrats campaigning for Barack Obama in Bucks County Pennsylvania in the fall of two thousand eight going door to door so it it gave me everything personally professionally it was what validated for me this is what I want to spend my life doing, being around people who shared that same passion and conviction that politics matters, that politics is how you change people's lives. The moment I remember that it all really clicked was being at an event with Barack Obama. And he talked all the time about our collective responsibility to close the gap between the world as it is and the world as it should be. And that really resonated with me. And it clicked that the most efficient and the most scalable way to do that, to close the gap between the world as it is and the world as it should be, to ultimately fix the broken things in our world is through government and through politics. It's the most effective and impactful way to make real change for real people. And I definitely started college with that top of mind and spent as much time as I possibly could doing politics for that reason. Because it was clear to me that if you wanted to bring change, you had to engage in the process. I bet I know some of the people who you studied with in history and government departments there. Because I've spent some time in Cambridge as a graduate student in politics at, at MIT and went over to that department occasionally. How did Bain get you to work for them after you had been like immersed in politics and interest and part of the college Democrats. And it seems like so many of our bright students are going into that kind of world of trying to figure out how to make companies bigger. I mean, Bain is, is a very successful enterprise in that area. How is that 
happen with you? It's a great question. And I think about it all the time now. For me, it was ultimately about professional development and personal growth. And I remember spending a lot of time, all my previous summers before I interned for for Bain were on campaigns and in politics. And at no point during any of those summers did any of my supervisors sit me down and say, Jason, what are your goals for your career? Or what are the skills you want to develop? Or here are the things you're doing really, really well. Here are the things I think you could do better. Let's create a plan for you to achieve those things. And then I decided to intern at Bain for a summer, honestly, just to try it out. It was really to prove to myself, I thought that I didn't want to have anything to do with private sector work and went for a summer and had a manager who sat me down every two weeks and said, here's what you're doing really well. And here are your development opportunities. And let's talk about what your 10 year plan is and how to get there. And I remember being floored by that and so grateful to have someone who was so invested in my growth and it clicked for me that, hey, this is probably where I should go spend a couple years after college to become the best possible professional I possibly can to get the skills that will allow me to go do the work I want to do. I never saw Bain as a career, but I saw it as a tremendous opportunity and platform to hone a skill set, to hone strategic thinking skills and analytical skills and communication skills, and to have someone who is coaching me and mentoring me every day. That's not totally fair, right? Obviously, they're incredible coaches and mentors in the political space, but I don't think the political space thinks about professional development as systematically as some companies in the private sector do. And I think that's ultimately to the detriment of our space. We're in the talent business, right? Doing politics and and doing democracy work. And I think there is tremendous opportunity for us to think more holistically and completely about how we cultivate talent. I recently interviewed Robert Fox, who was COO for MoveOn and played that that role of operations at a series of important progressive institutions before that. And one of the things that he mentioned is how our world is not very good or not good enough at scaling these sort of enterprises in order to have the power to contend with what the other side has. And I think you may have almost inadvertently started training yourself in a way that he might suggest, perhaps. You know, there are lots of different institutions that can provide you. He mentioned MBAs, but like, it's not always looked with favor on on the left in the progressive world to have that kind of background where you are trained in management, let's say, or trained in thinking about how to grow enterprises. Tell me a little more about what you actually did learn at Bain that that you could apply going forward, or, or was there not that much, really? Oh, a ton, for sure. So I think what comes to mind for me, first and foremost, is certainly more of the soft skills, for lack of a better term. How do you pitch an idea how to structure an answer to a hard problem, how to work plan. Those are things that I think are universally applicable no matter what career you're in, but consulting gives you a crash course in them for sure. I think in terms of the harder skills, the strategy skills, you know, ultimately 
Bain works with some phenomenal companies who are thinking about what their strategy should be. What are the businesses, industries they want to be in? What are the products they should sell? How do they grow their business? And I think working with dozens of different clients across industries, you start to see some common themes. And I think through a lot of that work, I saw the importance of prioritization, the importance of having actually a strategy and a plan. What is your North Star goal? And how are you going to achieve it on a one-year timeline, on a three-year timeline, on a five- or ten-year timeline? The need to be disciplined in going after that North Star goal. The reality that you often face very real trade-offs in a business. You can't do everything all at once, and so you need to actually weigh the value of this strategy that is you know, going to expand internationally versus that strategy that is expanding your product offerings. I'm just making up examples, but there are trade-offs there. And so how do you think about weighing them in meaningful ways? Those are all things that I see now in a lot of the organizations in the democracy space that, frankly, I think they probably need to do a little bit better of, right? Like, what is your North Star goal and how are you going to achieve it? And how are you going to be hyper-disciplined and focused on achieving that goal? How do you weigh the opportunity cost of doing this versus that, of following path A versus path B? Again, there are exceptional leaders in our space doing exceptional work. And some of that thinking of how do I craft and hone a strategy and stay focused on it, I think is a skill set that is universally applicable and useful and I think would benefit our space to lean into even more. I've talked to liberal college students who tend to view the for-profit world, the capitalist world, the consulting world with a baleful eye right now. You know, think that maybe the values there are antithetical to progressive governance and trying to make society better. What would you say to them about like why or why not to choose a path like that? Because a lot of people, it seems like, undertake that after college and don't ever leave it and maybe don't ever come to apply their skill set that they learn to problems outside of capitalism, which I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with that, but it is quite different than what you're doing right now and quite different than perhaps what they're seeking. How would you have them think about that? First, I'd say that not all private sector jobs are created equal. And so you ultimately need to know your own moral compass and your own bright lines of the type of work you're willing to do and not do. One thing that I continue to be deeply proud of about having worked at Bain is that Bain has a very clear set of values and principles. Um, they have, you know, they, they want folks to have a meaningful opportunity to say, hey, this is a project that it doesn't sit well with my personal principles. I don't want to work on it. But also they as a firm, as a company, avoid a lot of the more questionable work. I mean, you've seen some of the headlines about some of the other consulting firms and the work that they've done. Not all private sector companies are the same. And so I think focusing on ones that have values that align with yours, that stay out of work that may be questionable or dubious for you has to come first and foremost. I think thereafter, it's a question of being really clear and specific with yourself about what you're hoping to get out of it and when it might be time to go. And I knew I ultimately was going to go back to politics 
I knew it was a way for me to get the skill set in a short amount of time. Well, was, was there part of you that was not excited about the work day to day beyond the creation of a skill set? Like, why did you leave when you left? Ultimately, I left to go to law school. It was the right time. And I felt like in my three years at Bain, I had gotten the skills I'd wanted to get. Why did you pick law school? I mean, you you suggested that like that maybe was your path back into politics to some degree. But yeah, law is not, you don't go lightly into that three years. It's challenging and a chunk of life. For sure. Yes. I definitely think I underestimated how hard it would be to go to professional school when I did not want to be the profession because I knew I did not want to be a lawyer. But the decision to go to law school crystallized for me. It was on the Obama reelect. I took a leave of absence from Bain to go work on the Obama reelect in Iowa. And I had a lot of time in rural Iowa to think. There was not a lot of cell reception in the 21 counties I was responsible for running get out the vote efforts in. And so I spent a lot of time driving in the car with only my thoughts um, or really, really extreme conservative radio, which I did not want to listen to, and had a lot of conversations while I was in Iowa with volunteers and supporters. And it became really obvious in that experience that Democracy isn't something we have, it's something we do. And that there's a responsibility to do the work of democracy. And it's not just voting, it's also volunteering, it's getting involved, going to local community meetings, it's doing democracy. And it was in Iowa that I said, I want to do democracy. That is what I want to spend my career doing. And I believe then, and I still believe now that Ultimately, democracy runs on the rule of law and on systems of governance and very clear legislation. And I knew that having the skill set to be able to read that and understand that and navigate that system would be an asset to do democracy work. And that has borne out, especially now when you see the attacks on the rule of law and attacks on systems of governance it's in a lot of ways our greatest defense to further assault from anti-democratic forces. And so, again, retroactive, like, oh, it all makes sense. But at the time, it was was clear that knowing how laws work would be a good place to start to use law as a tool to make change for people. Yale Law, I have a lot of friends who've attended, has the reputation of being sort of a place where you can really dig into the theoretical, where it's less about the memorization maybe and more about thinking. You're exposed to amazing people in in the law. So you are there during a turning point period politically, a period where Trump starts to run for office, where he defeats the Republicans in the primary and I, I believe they're through the, you're there through his win, if, if I'm not mistaken. Tell me about attending that institution, thinking about the things that you're thinking about theoretically and watching such a development in American democracy. Yeah, it was wild. <laughs> I can't even think of another word. That's, it, it was truly wild. 
And I think it's because, you know, you were at this institution that believes in truth, that stands for truth, that is about the pursuit of truth. And we just elected a president who was the opposite of the truth, right? Like antithetical to truth. He's a um, constant, constant liar. Yes, exactly. <laughs> well said. <laughs> and I think that shook a lot of people to their core. I remember just feeling, you know, going to class that the next day, that Wednesday, and hearing professors who like had spent their whole careers and lives in the pursuit of truth, right? Who now had to grapple with the reality that this country had elected someone who lied with every breath. And that was deeply, deeply unsettling. I think there was also the reality at the time, not everyone was looking around this corner, but some certainly were, that we were in constitutional law classes talking about consistent ideologies and textualism versus originalism and and all these different ways to interpret the constitution, but the belief that there was actually consistency in that and recognizing that with the election of Donald Trump, we were about to get some justices, which should maybe draw some of that into question. And obviously, you know, that bore out earlier this year. But it was really, I think, scary to a lot of folks to recognize that all these things that we had held dear, that the idea of truth was under attack. But I also think in a lot of ways, it deepened folks' resolve to fight, recognizing that to our the earlier point, lawyers in particular had a role to play in the resistance, had a role to play in pushing back against the worst actions and impulses of the Trump administration. There was a doubling down and an eagerness to stand up and fight right out of the gate. You know, our commencement speaker was John Lewis, and he gave a keynote that I'll remember for the rest of my life about finding a way to get in the way and having a responsibility to get in the way. And I think there was recognition from day one of the Trump administration that it was incumbent on everyone who had the privilege to be in law school, to be graduating from law school, to go get in the way. When I look at your career and I think about the next thing you did going to to Thumbtack, it works right now that you spent time at a tech company. It seems like an odd choice for a Yale Law grad without knowing what's coming after. Tell me about like the options you had and why you chose that one. I knew I didn't want to work in big law. Um, so I wrote that off pretty quickly. It was just not a fit for me personally. I ultimately thought I would leave law school and, as I said, go work in a Democratic administration, a Clinton administration, or go back into politics in some form. And after 2016, it became clear that that was not a viable option. And at the same time, I wanted to seize that opportunity to pursue a different way of making change. I believed and continue to believe that the best way, the most scalable way to fix what's broken in the world and make change for people is through government. But when you don't control the levers of power in government, you have to make change in other ways. And what stood out to me about the work that Thumbtack was doing as a marketplace for local services, helping small business owners find new customers online was a real belief that the way small business owners, that the tools they had to grow their businesses were inadequate, that it was too hard to start a small business. 
And so the mindset of let's build a product, let's build a solution that will make it easier for small business owners to run a business for themselves and their families, that was really interesting to me because I knew that with the Trump administration, the work of the Small Business Administration was certainly going to look different than it would under a President Clinton. And so what was this other way, this other option to provide for and support small business owners? It was through tech. I'm really grateful I had that experience and that opportunity to try this different way of making change, of building your own solution outside of government if you can't actually use government because you don't have power. What did you learn about small business from doing that? I was blown away every day by the resolve of American small business owners, the fight. It is far too hard in too many parts of this country to build a small business. And the fact that so many individuals are able to overcome those obstacles and build something that they are proud of. Honestly, it left me impressed and inspired every day. So many people in this country just want to put food on the table and create a good life for themselves and their families. And the best way that they see to do that is to go on their own and to try to create something that lasts. And so many of them are able to do it despite the obstacles, despite the challenges. They persevere and they work hard and they build something with their own hands from the ground up. I think from that experience, I took away a real desire to want to fight to make it easier in this country for small business owners to build, to think more holistically about economic policy in a way that leans into the fact that small business owners are the backbone of the American economy. I didn't grow up surrounded by a ton of small business owners I knew well. It was an incredible opportunity to spend the time at Thumbtack getting to talk to hundreds and hundreds of them who had so many common experiences, so many shared hopes and dreams and aspirations, again, for themselves and their families and their businesses. It's certainly an experience that I'll never forget. Head of community seems like an interesting role. Tell me about it. Yeah. Um, so my responsibility at Thumbtack was ultimately to connect the small business owners on the platform to each other so that they could share tips and tricks and best practices and advice in order to grow their businesses together. And the fundamental belief there was that ultimately a lot of small business owners share a lot of the same challenges and therefore can help each other in real ways, whether it's sharing tips on how to hire your first employee or when to hire your first employee or how to navigate nuances of tax policy in your state. Or if you're in a particular industry and you're also a plumber working in a certain state, what are the things you need to know about licensing or new products on the market? Like create a space for folks to talk about that because ultimately creating a small business can be really lonely and really hard. And connecting with folks who are having a similar experience in my experience, seem to be really rewarding. Of course, I, I have not started my own business, but heard often from folks in, in that role that 
just knowing that there were others out there who were facing similar obstacles who could share advice and tips gave a lot of comfort because running and managing your own business day to day is a really solitary experience at times. And so we were just trying to create a space, a forum where folks could come together and talk about that experience in a meaningful way. How did the job at Schmidt Futures come to you? I was very lucky to have had a few close colleagues from law school who were employees, early employees at Schmidt Futures. And I saw early on what a phenomenal experience they were having a few years into my time at Thumbtack and was eager to start thinking about the next thing. And the timing, uh, I guess, just worked out pretty well. You Did someone recruit you or did you approach them? Did you see a job opening? Yeah, uh, I, I got a, a phone call from close friends who were her there who were like, hey, we should you know, chat and see if there could be a, a fit. For those who haven't heard of Schmidt Futures, what is it? So Schmidt Futures is a philanthropic initiative of Eric and Wendy Schmidt that really focuses on betting on people, exceptional people who are just trying to make the world better. And so Schmidt Futures really thinks about and focuses on empowering those folks, on finding them, empowering them, and giving them the support they need to actualize their big ideas for solving the hard problems in society. Who are Eric and Wendy Schmidt? Eric and Wendy Schmidt are phenomenal philanthropists. Eric has a phenomenal history, obviously, originally as a, a technologist, as the former CEO and chairman of Google. Wendy has done exceptional work throughout her career. And together at Schmidt Futures, they have created something that leans into the best of what they've done and the best of what they want to do going forward to, again, really take a bet on people. Because I think that has been a common thread throughout both of their careers. What is your role? I work on protecting and advancing American democracy um, through a lot of our work um, across the organization. What does that mean? Ultimately, we are betting on people who are doing the work to make a democracy stronger who are doing the work to protect the worst assaults on our democratic system, who are trying to make our country and our system of government live up to its greatest potential. What does betting on them mean? It means believing in them when others may not. Does that mean providing financial support to individuals? Does that mean providing financial support to enterprises that they might be trying to Put together. I'm not clear at this point about what you guys are actually up to. Yeah. So betting on people means finding folks who have a big idea, a vision for the change they want to see in the world and ultimately giving them the support they need to go chase that dream. And that certainly means financial support at times but it also means connecting them to a network, connecting them to others who are doing comparable work, connecting them to other resources, whether it's mentorship or coaching, whatever you need to be a leader in the space 
to go solve the hard problem because we know it's really hard to solve hard problems. And so what does it take to equip you as a leader to go do that work? That is ultimately our mission and that is what we're focused on doing. It sounds really good. It sounds like something where, you know, looking for those sort of people and helping them out would be a compelling thing to do with your time. Can you give me a sense of like, how do you find people to support? How do they find you? What's the process around that? As you know, our democracy space is not very big. There are not nearly enough folks doing the work to protect and advance democracy, just given the scope of the challenges we face at this moment. And so certainly there's more work to do to just grow our community and bring more folks into the fold. And even with the relatively small compared to the problem community we have, there is some exceptional talent. And that more than anything is what gives me hope. We haven't yet talked about all the threats to democracy at this point. There's certainly many of them. But what gives me real hope is the fact that we have exceptional leaders, democracy warriors who are in the trenches fighting to preserve democracy every day, cycle after cycle. And we know a lot of them. A lot of them have been on your podcast before. I see our responsibility as helping them and finding them and doing whatever we can to lift up their work because this is an all hands on deck moment and we have what we need on our side to rise to the occasion, but we need to make sure we're doing it. So I'm a exceptional guy who's running a democracy related podcast. If I wanted to get support from you, how would I go about it? Well, I think we have a pretty good pulse on, on what's happening, but we constantly are looking for outreach from folks who are doing exceptional work in the space. What we define as exceptional talent in the democracy space, what, what I define as exceptional talent in the democracy space is... I'm, assu I'm assuming this does not include me, but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> uh, of course it does. Um, it's a commitment to do good, to serve the public benefit to uphold the democratic system, to advance the idea of an inclusive multiracial democracy and to have a vision for what that means, which often means breaking from the status quo. There are ways in which the same old, same playbook in this moment is inadequate and won't be enough. And so how do we think differently about what has to come next? So I'm still trying to understand like what would I do to would I just send you an email and say, Hey, I got this great idea. Yeah. It's a great place to start. Yeah. Do you receive emails like that? Do you go? I mean, you've said it's a small space. I've seen you when I've like attended higher ground labs meetings or new media ventures. I've seen, you know, I came across you in these spaces where people are working on that intersection of tech and democracy. I'm sure there's a lot of others where you're circulating and looking around at what's out there and who's doing good work. Tell me a little bit more about how you think through who to support, how you find them, how they find you. You just mentioned a bunch of the ways. I definitely get outreach from folks. I definitely attend events and convenings across our space. Word of mouth matters a lot. 
in this space, especially because it is small and because everyone kind of knows what everyone is working on in a way that I think is actually good and helpful. Although I find it to be gigantic in certain respects, like I'm always finding out about new ventures that I hadn't heard of. Yes. Right. Which is critical, right? To the point of like needing new blood, new perspective, new vision, anything that's not growing is is dying. And so the fact that what we have as in the democracy space is something that is growing, new folks coming in with new ideas and new vision all the time. Again, that is a tremendous source of hope for me in this moment that we have such exceptional leaders doing the work and new leaders raising their hand every day with new ideas every day. And so I spend a lot of time just thinking about how do we find those folks, yes, but how do we also create the conditions to make it easier for more of them to come into this space and to join the fight for democracy? And I think that gets back to what we were talking about earlier around like, what are the obstacles that are preventing exceptionally talented folks from entering the democracy space, whether it's a lack of investment in professional development or personal growth or other broader talent issues? What are the things that are keeping young people who have the skill set from raising their hand and saying, I want to go devote my career to that. That's what we need to fix. Like we need to remove those obstacles stat because that's the only way we can continue to grow the ecosystem of people who are doing this work and we need to. What do you think will remove those obstacles or what are you doing in particular to help with that? Yeah. So I personally think that the focus on professional development has to be front and center, top of mind. And so how do we think about training folks on our side? How do we think about mentorship, coaching? How do we think about community, putting folks in touch with each other? Again, the democracy space can be a lonely space because it's really hard. And so how do we create connections between the people who are doing that work so that it feels a little less lonely. There, I certainly think about the experience I had at Thumbtack connecting small business owners, but also a lot of what the private sector has done to cultivate a sense of common purpose, to build and sustain alumni communities of employees who have worked there before. We see the examples and best practices. How do we take them and leverage them in the public sector democracy space in particular, it's all of the above. As you know, I've talked to a lot of the people who are in this space that are running organizations. When they talk about funders or people trying to improve the ecosystem that come out of Silicon Valley that have sort of political teams that evaluate the space and make decisions about funding and things like that. If I hear a complaint, because I think people are grateful when they do get funding or cranky when they don't, but if I hear a complaint, it's something like there's sometimes a big gap between the, between the funder in their knowledge of what actually happens in the ecosystem on the ground when you're a practitioner, when you're operating a small enterprise and all of the complexities of that and what like Reed Hoffman at LinkedIn might know 
from having run a a unicorn sort of enterprise, or I would assume Eric Schmidt. And I would think that that would be important to narrow that and to, from someone in your position, how do you think about, like, how do I really learn what's going on at these kind of enterprises? Because people are very good sometimes at pitching something or telling a story. I think there's probably a frustration on both sides about like, how do we, how do we really know what's working, what has impact, where money should go and how can, you know, as an organization, how can we trust that the people up there who are funding us are making the right decisions, really know what's going on? How do you think about that? Yeah, it's a great question. I think there is a responsibility to be proximate and get proximate. And so that is most simple when you come from the space or have done the work on the ground, having experienced it firsthand, having worked for nonprofits doing grassroots work or having worked on campaigns certainly gives you a certain perspective that I think is really important. But if you haven't had that experience firsthand or directly, I think that creates even more of an obligation to figure out how you get close, as close as you can to that work. And that means going to offices, like meeting people where they are, rolling up your sleeves and getting your hands dirty, whatever that means in whatever way you can. And again, I think that's like universally true. Again, just my personal view for like philanthropy generally, for funding generally, and in the democracy space in particular, you have to know the work and see the work and get close to it. Because otherwise, I think there are just naturally blind spots. Is there a example or two you could share about uh, enterprise that you think is really doing excellent work in the democracy space that you're aware of and that you've helped? Oh my gosh, there are so many exceptional folks. I don't even know where to start. I think what inspires me personally are the folks doing the work on the ground, again, in the trenches fighting every day, but are also thinking big picture long-term about a different future, ideally one where they and we collectively won't have to fight as hard. I think of folks so quickly point to the work of Stacey Abrams after 2020, and rightfully so. But what's so inspiring about it to me was, you know, it was a 10-year vision longer than that of like, hey, here's the work we're going to do in Georgia. And it's going to take longer than a cycle. You're not going to see all the results by November. It's going to be a process and a journey. And there are so many folks across the country who have that long-term focus and long-term vision while they do the fighting day to day to protect democracy for the next election. That is what inspires me. And again, I mean, Nathaniel, you've spoken to so many of these folks on your podcasts, whether it's Kadita Kenner, New Pennsylvania Project, or Marissa Morales and Somos. Like, I, I can't, you know, there's so many exceptional folks doing this work, but it's that combination of like the short term focus and the need to put out the dumpster fire immediately before us while also thinking 10 years down the line. How do you think about the tech part of that landscape? Obviously, I come from that. I care about that. There's an article I read online today about work that you guys did with Stack Labs, which I've also talked to someone out of Stack and I'm aware of what they do. And so there's a lot of different parts of technology. There's building software, there's making sure that it 
that software gets to the right places. There's lots of experimentation with models and a lot of thinking anew about how can we use technology to further democracy or to further the way um, different enterprises that are fundamental to it operate. What's your philosophy about what should be funded and, and what is effective? Yeah. So my personal view is we, as a democracy space, need to focus more on shared infrastructure and on the platforms and the tools that the entire movement can leverage and benefit from and the shared utilities that all groups can use. And this is like a classic collective action problem, right? It's like just really hard to get folks to focus on shared resources when they are running their own programs and doing their own work. And I totally get that. And the opportunity I see is for us to think more holistically and in a more disciplined way on creating the shared infrastructure that all movement groups can use and benefit from. That means building for the long haul. It means building things that won't necessarily come to completion before the next election, but thinking long-term about what we can build that all groups can ultimately benefit from in a meaningful way. What do you think about the types of organizations that make the most sense in the tech space? There's a broad range of ways that groups are organized to do that, that range from for-profit companies to nonprofits to political action committees to consortia or cooperatives. How do you think about advising people or evaluating whether they've got the right type of organization? I think that like actual type of entity matters less than the protections you have in place to wholly commit to a mission and to wholly commit to impact. And so I don't think it's particularly useful personally to debate, you know, should it be a nonprofit or a for-profit? Certainly in the democracy space, there are all sorts of considerations there related to campaign finance, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But what is most interesting to me is how do we ensure that what the movement builds ultimately is for the movement, by the movement? How do we create structures that allow for a devotion to impact and to mission permanently. There's certainly room for innovation there. And I don't know if we have all the answers yet. I don't think we do. I think we need more tools in our tool belt, so to speak. And that is, I think, a, a really potentially fruitful area for inquiry for our space overall in the years to come. I, I saw a article recently about whether there's a problem in this space with a bias towards the new, towards funding the new. People refer to it as like the, the funders like to see the shiny objects to be part of the creation of a, a new thing and that they let sometimes more enduring institutions fall by the wayside that could use support that have already proven themselves. How do you think about that? question whether or not we should be supporting something that's tried and true versus something that might be disruptive and new and tantalizing. Ultimately, we should focus on the things that work. And so if 
there is a group doing really great work that is showing the impact that they are having that has evidence to support it, then I personally believe we should be making sure that they have the support they need, that we don't always chase the shiny penny for the sake of it being shiny. And I also think we need to be willing to ask ourselves the hard questions and confront the reality if something is not working and where we might need to shake things up and pursue a different path to revisit or rewrite the playbook. Of course, this is a case-by-case analysis, but ultimately, I think new for the sake of new is not compelling. And we shouldn't be afraid of new just because it's new either. So how do we ensure we are driven by the data, driven by the facts, and make decisions that ultimately will put us in the best position to have the greatest impact? When you were talking a minute ago about things that were shared resources, to me that called to mind a lot of times things that are building data because data can be shared very effectively and often it's very difficult to build. We know voter files are difficult to build, but can be very valuable. One of the enterprises in that space, and I have no idea if you support them or not, is Ballot Ready, for example, which gets a list of everyone running for office and what is on the the ballot so that you can know before you go show up to vote who all the choices are and so on. And that, you know, I know as a builder of software in the space that if I can purchase data like that from them in service of building some other application that uses it, it makes my entry into something much simpler. And there are lots of examples, I think, of enterprises building data like that. Ballot ready happens to be nonpartisan. Um, How do you think about navigating partisanship in tech and with things like data? You've said before, how do we make sure things stay stay with the mission? There's a lot of complexity in, in, in that space between what supports democracy, what supports a party that's more supporting democracy at this moment, but may not always. How do you think about all of that complexity? Yeah. Wow. Million dollar question. I mean, you're spot on. This is way harder than it was like not that many years ago when to be pro-capital D democratic and to be pro-democracy were not necessarily like wholly one in the same. And they're not wholly the same now, but it's like 96%. (laughs) (laughs) What I focus on personally is an ability to articulate what that mission is and what are the bright line rules. And so if you are nonpartisan in your work, are you at least articulating a standard for needing to be explicitly pro-democracy, right? So maybe that's, hey, we won't work with folks who voted to overturn the election results, for example. But I think articulating those values is really important, whatever they are, regardless of how partisan or not you want to be. It's sort of irrelevant in my view, but you need to know what your North Star is and what the parameters for actually achieving that will be. I care personally a lot about organizations articulating those values and those principles and less about the specificity of what is in scope or out of scope. Like you just need to articulate something and let's use that as a starting point for a conversation. I think the reality of our space as you've seen is that, you know, a lot of the 
tech and data tools certainly do fall on one side of the partisan spectrum for all sorts of market reasons. And that makes sense about wanting your customers to trust you and knowing that all party data is staying sort of within the family, so to speak. I personally don't have a strong opinion on that. And to be clear, this is a view I have regardless of like whether you're in political tech or in the world generally, like I actually think companies in the private sector need to do a much better job of this too, saying what they stand for and what they will uphold, what their values are, what their principles are. That's especially true in politics and democracy. But I think companies all over the world need to do a much better job of that generally. You expressed an interest previously in joining administration when it could have been Clinton. Now we do have a Democratic administration. Do you think about like what you would love to do if you were to go into government directly? I have not thought about that in a minute, to be honest, mostly because I think I'm so heads down on 2022. I still believe that actual government, like being in administration or in Congress is the best way to make change at scale quickly. What excites me about campaigning is that that's ultimately how you elect the people who will go make the change you want to see in the world. And so I have always seen it as sort of the first step in that journey. You're not going to leverage government as a resource for change if you don't have the right people there. And so I've been very passionate these days about just making sure we have the right people in office. And I get a lot of energy and a lot of fulfillment from doing that work. Never say never. Maybe there would be a day where administration opportunity would make sense. And if I had that tremendous privilege and honor, it would be worth considering and thinking about for sure. But these days, what gives me energy is just making sure that we are electing people who want to use government for good in the first place and putting them in a position to actually do so. In your LinkedIn and elsewhere, you're identified as working with 1-1 Ventures. What's the distinction between that and Schmidt Futures? 1-1 Ventures is a program through which we do a lot of our democracy work. What are other programs that you would like people to know about that are going on at, at Schmidt Futures? Yeah, we're working on a new program called Futures Fellows for Democracy, which is not yet launched. I saw that on the website. Sound very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Um, and the vision for Futures Fellows for Democracy is to lean into the themes we were talking about earlier, betting on people, specifically on people with bold, big, moonshotty ideas for helping American democracy live up to its truest potential as a multiracial and inclusive democracy, as an equitable and just democracy. And by finding folks who have great ideas, who have a vision for what that could look like and who are willing to work at it for 10 years plus, how can we ultimately then empower them to do that work, to support them? Not just financially, as we talked about, all the other things around creating a community of getting professional development and coaching and mentoring that has so much potential baked into it. Um, and so we're planning to open application for that program in, in the coming months and hopefully launch an inaugural cohort in 2023, but it builds on 
themes that we've been working on for some time around finding that exceptional talent and betting on them, helping to catalyze their work in order to achieve the change that they want to see in our democratic system. Who are you thinking about with that? Are you thinking about young people that are very early in their career? Are you thinking about people with a 10 or 15 years of experience in the space? Are you thinking about gray beards? What is the the model in your head of who you would like to apply? Yeah, in my mind, it's folks who have a track record, but whose best days are still before them. Folks who have shown that they can do the work and have an impact and have a plan for how they want to spend the next, again, 10, 15, 20 years to make meaningful change. And so that's probably not someone who's at the end of their career, right? Because this is a long-term bet. It's also probably not someone who's at the very, very beginning because I think having a bit of a track record in order to take a really massive swing to improve democracy is helpful. And so I think like that mid-career sweet spot, when Stacey Abrams was you know first elected minority leader in the state legislature and was talking about registering hundreds of thousands of people of color in the state, and not everyone took her seriously at the time to everyone's detriment. And yet she persevered and she did the work and she convinced folks to believe in that vision and that mission. How many Stacey Abrams are there doing work either in different states or just totally different views or perspectives on what is needed to change American democracy, who need support, would benefit from support, would benefit from a community, a cohort of folks doing similar work in order to go take that risk, take that bet, take that chance to the benefit of us all and to our system of government. Sounds very good. What would they get? Supposing someone with that kind of vision applies, gets selected by you and your team to do that, what happens to them? Do they have to move to where you are? Do they get a salary? Do they get looked at for funding for something they want to build? What accrues to them? We're still working through the specific offering. Um, I think you just touched on a few really interesting things. Definitely not move anywhere. I think being proximate to the work, again, is critical. Doing the work is critical. And so this is about betting on folks who are doing the work in their communities. We're certainly thinking about what financial support would look like. And also, we know financial support is not enough. It is really hard to be a visionary leader doing democracy work, period. And so what are the other things that we can offer to people who are willing to commit their time, their careers to doing this work, that I believe should be a holistic offering of resources, a network connection to folks who can help. Again, a community, people who are also doing that work alongside you so you can share tips and best practices and advice along the way. It is more than just money. There is a good amount of money in the democracy space already. I would argue not yet enough given the scope of the problems we face, but there is. And so how do we think more intelligently about how our space spends those resources for sure, but independent of resources, we know the challenges are are many and don't all have dollar signs attached to them. And so how do we provide for folks who want to be doing this work in ways beyond just making sure their budgets are full? Can you tell me just a little bit about the team at Schmidt? Because 
just from looking at your website and knowing a person or two that has gone to work there, that there's a lot of expertise that is available through your staff alone to someone trying to do something in tech or otherwise. What do you have kind of in-house that can help somebody and who? Yeah, Schmidt Futures has some of the most exceptionally talented folks I've ever had the privilege to work with in my career. I feel very lucky to work with those folks every day. There are a ton of folks who have done the, the work, who have come from industry, have come from the field, whatever field that is, who are now thinking about how they bring that expertise to bear in a real way in order to help others make change. There is a, a fundamental belief that having been close to the work allows you to be better at then helping others do the work. The number, sheer number of talented folks who have done really incredible things in their careers is inspiring and great. And across many of the initiatives that Schmidt Futures works on, that expertise, I think, is, is brought to bear in, in really meaningful ways. You don't want to name anyone in particular? <laughs> I have uh, <laughs> exceptional colleagues across the board. They're all great. <laughs> Gonna let single anyone out. One of the things that I would imagine would be tricky in this time is the way almost anything you do can get attacked by the anti-democratic forces, the authoritarian forces. How do you guys navigate that when you are sometimes doing things that are controversial, at least might feel that way to someone? If you're pro-democracy and they're not, they might not much like some of the things that you're up to. And the people who founded this are, are public figures in certain ways. How do you manage the border between being transparent and, and being private about what you do? How do you think about that? Yeah, you're right. It's hard. Things that used to not be controversial have become controversial for everyone, right? Like companies taking a stand for diversity and belonging, things that used to not be at all hard, all of a sudden get attacked. Um, Teaching about the actual history of the country. Correct. I mean, yeah. it's crazy. Yeah. And so I personally see an importance now more than ever in being very explicit about what your values are and what you stand for. And some of these things can be black and white, right? Like saying that democracy is a good thing and that you support democracy shouldn't be a controversial statement. In my opinion, isn't a controversial statement. But if you are trying to do something to help more people vote, that becomes inevitably partisan, it seems like in this environment. Almost anything you do will be cast that way. Totally. And I think that is partially unavoidable and also creates even more of a responsibility to be very clear about what your values are, right? Like democracy and voting is a great example. When the Voting Rights Act was last reauthorized in 2006, the vote was 98-0 in the Senate to reauthorize it. You know, I think like 17 of the senators who voted against it earlier this year were previously for it in 2006. I mean, these things used to not be controversial. And just because they are now controversial doesn't mean they're wrong. 
I think it just makes it even more of an imperative that we take a stand on what matters. And I think taking a stand for democracy is an objectively good and important thing, even if the attacks for doing so are more forceful than they once were. I think the only way we move forward is to be very clear about what matters and being very clear about what we're willing to stand for. And I feel that now more than ever. What should I have asked you that I haven't? We have not talked a lot about the threats to democracy at this moment in time. What do you see as threats to democracy? What are you worried about? I think the assault on our way of life, on our rule of law, on our system of government is very much under attack. I mean, just last week, we had a, a assassination attempt on the Speaker of the House, um, the second in line to president. And I think we have underreacted to that moment. I think that the right would like to view that as a isolated person with a mental illness, which I think in some ways it is, but it's also in the context of that person being fully informed by disinformation, by intentional misleading of the American public by people for nefarious reasons. Yes, 100% agreed. I think alongside that, you see the reality of the fact that 60% of Americans now have an election denier on the ballot for statewide or federal office this cycle. Some of those folks are going to win, regardless of the actual outcome on November 8th. And they might use their power to actually do undemocratic things. Completely. Yes. I mean, Carrie Lake, who's running for governor in Arizona, has said she would not have certified Arizona's election results in 2020. Doug Mastriano, who's running for governor in Pennsylvania, was literally at the Capitol on January 6th. It is wholly within the realm of possibility that if some of these folks are elected, the implications for a free and fair election in 2024 are dire folks refusing to certify results, sending slates of electors who will defy the will of the people. I mean, this is a, a crisis moment. And ultimately, I am hopeful and I am an optimist, despite what feels like the greatest threats I've certainly experienced in my lifetime to our way of life and our democracy. And that hope comes from a lot of the things we've talked about. It's the fact that there are democracy warriors who are in the trenches every day doing the work, who are wholly committed to doing the work and aren't going to back down. It's the fact that ultimately the pro-democracy side, I think, wins on the issues. I don't think we're winning right now. We're not winning right now, no. But when you think about the long term and the issues that we do fight for and stand for, I mean, they're popular things, and I'll conflate pro-democracy and pro-democrat for a minute, but when it comes to things like reproductive rights or gun control or minimum wage or controlling drug prices, I mean, Democrats are on the right side of those issues, on the right side of democracy. We need to do a way better job of getting folks to vote accordingly and understand what we stand for and who we are. But I'd rather be on the popular side of the issues than the unpopular side of the issues. And so can we do the work in time to convince enough folks 
of the value of where we stand and what we stand for so that we can ultimately win. I feel like both you and I would agree that it's a crisis moment. You've stated it. I feel it. One of the things that can't help but gnaw at me is we're in this crisis moment, but when we hear about sort of the wealthy donors on the side of democracy, you hear generally that they have stepped back from the levels of funding that they were putting in going up to 2020, that there is a, you know, kind of a reevaluation going on. I'm not saying specific to Eric Schmidt or, or his wife, but like generally in the space, one hears that there's a pullback and it seems to me like the emergency is only growing or quite possibly. Do you ever find yourself advocating for more, more investment, more work in your world? I'm sure you're in contact with other people on the same team of funders, essentially, on the pro-democracy funding world. Do you think we're doing enough? We see just piles of money showing up in the elections on the other side and in the work that they're doing in organizing. Are we putting enough in, not just in money, but in ambition and effort and whatever else is required? I'm concerned that we're not. What do you think? Yeah. I think that there is certainly alignment on the pro-democracy side that we are in a moment of crisis and also alignment that we have real tools in our tool belt to do something about it. And again, as you suggested, it's not just resources. We have the talent and we have the people. There is probably an opportunity to get more folks to recognize the gravity of this moment, to feel it viscerally. I think that gets back to what we were talking about earlier about being proximate to the work. Some of the most terrifying conversations I've had in the last couple of years have been with poll workers in Georgia, election workers in Georgia, who literally are facing death threats for whom this is a life and death issue, right? Like it's not an overstatement to say that. By the way, Uh, plug for the movie, No Time to Fail. I just interviewed two filmmakers who, I don't know if you've seen the film, but it's about Rhode Island election workers and just what they go through on a day-to-day basis. There's a threat to just the regular operation of the democracy. A hundred percent. That plus, you know, look, I am a gay man. I am a Jewish man. Like I feel all sorts of uh, threats to those identities at this moment. I am marrying my partner next year. There is a world where our right to get married gets taken away in the not too distant future. One that we just got, uh, you know, in my adult life. And so there are really scary things happening. And I think There's also an opportunity to do something about them, but we need folks to see the gravity first and then be willing to act second immediately. Do you agree that some people aren't stepping up enough? Do you think that if, if you do, or regardless, do you think that like a bad midterm might be enough of a warning to catalyze more effort in this area among donors and, and related people? 
Oh, for sure. I mean, this is the all hands on deck moment. Um, and I hope that we can have the conversations to get everyone to realize that. And I think it's not just folks who are in the democracy space all the time. We talked early about businesses in the private sector. And I think like CEOs and corporations generally have a responsibility in this moment to take a stand for democracy, for the rule of law, because I don't know in what world they think they can continue to earn meaningful profits when there is no rule of law. There is an obligation and responsibility for them. There is an obligation and responsibility for our elite institutions of higher learning we were talking about earlier to like think about their admissions practices and their curricula and the reality of the fact that there are folks from within their alumni communities who have been the insurrectionists, who are the white supremacists. And so like what responsibility do our elite institutions have to think about what side they're on and what stand they want to take, what values they want to uphold. It is absolutely folks within the political space who need to recognize the gravity of this moment. But it's our broader society too. And we have the resources, we have the tools, we have the opportunity to do something about it. But again, it's that one, two step of first recognizing there's a problem and then being able and willing to act. And I see the opportunity and the potential there. And it's, it's why I have hope. Um, but we need more folks ultimately to recognize the skin they have in the game. Is there something that you think is the biggest gap, the biggest missing component of the fight? I do think it's that shared sense of responsibility, a recognition within folks who are adjacent to the political space, who are not in the political space, that this implicates them too. How do we make that realization happen? Honestly, it's a great question, Nathaniel. It's like something that is, I'm obsessing over these days. So I'll stick with like the, the corporate example or the business example, right? When North Carolina passed its bathroom bill and a bunch of companies stood up and said, hey, we're not going to do business in North Carolina anymore until you do something about this. Like that was a really important and meaningful moment. But the and other ultimately- side is learning how to use like DeSantis is is learning how and prepared to use the power of the state or the federal government, if they get a hold of it again, to punish companies and to make it in their interest to not be supporters of democracy. Bolsonaro lined up the, the world to try to support his reelection, right? He used the fe- his federal government to do that. That's the playbook. We know that's coming. Yes, yes. completely. And that's where... Again, this is not a Parson thing. This is like a just a democracy thing. And ultimately, I think the work that has to happen is getting CEOs to realize there is no strong economy without a strong democracy. There, there are strong author- authoritarianism has produced plenty of strong economies that favored certain businesses, have created oligarchs. Rich people have gotten richer under different systems. How do we make sure that our most successful are staying on the right side. Most business leaders in this country would agree that we are better from competition. And that means economic competition, but it also means political competition. And I think we need CEOs and business leaders in particular to recognize not only do they perhaps, I would argue, have a moral responsibility in this moment, but also it is just good business for them in the long run to know that there is predictability and stability and certainty in transition of power in laws on the books actually being upheld 
it is in the best interests of businesses to know that the way our democracy has functioned reliably and sustainably and stably in the past will continue to be the case going forward. There's certainly work to do there. And I don't think we've necessarily spent time, we being pro-democracy forces, building a coalition outside of immediate circles of practitioners who already do this work to make the case that ultimately got to take a stand and not taking a stand ha- is a choice too and has detrimental effects on, again, on the economy, on businesses, on ways of life, on people's rights. And ultimately, we need to get more folks over that hill and over that hump to action. Jason, I could really talk to you all day about this sort of stuff. I appreciate you indulging me for as long as you have. I'm glad that you're up to what you're up to. And I appreciate the efforts that you guys are making on the right side of things. Is there anything else that you want to say? I would just say one, thank you for the opportunity. And I also really enjoyed the chat and love to continue it at some point soon. I already quoted John Lewis once. You can always do well with him, yes. Yeah. Another quote that always resonates with me from him was that, you know, we may not have chosen the time, but the time has chosen us. And I feel that every day. And this feels like the moment where we are being called to action in real ways. And we have the resources on our side to do something about it. We have the tools, we have the people, we have the talent. We sure as hell not let it pass us by. I am, in my small way, a student of our history in this country and a believer in what is good about America. I really hope we don't squander it now. Agreed. I'm with you on that. Appreciate talking to you. That was Jason Birkenfeld. Jason is at SchmidtFutures.com. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.